Hi, I'm Mandy. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast for Harrisonburg Nazarene Church. Please subscribe for updates and new episodes to the podcast. Also, you can now search for our podcast on Spotify. Join us each Sunday at 1030 a.m. on Facebook Live. Be sure to like or follow our page while you're there. Well, good morning. We're going to be in uh, the book of Acts. We've been in the series on Acts. We're going to be uh, in 6 verse 7, Acts 6 verse 7. Uh, but ladies, that was, that was powerful. Can we thank them again? That... I have no idea how much work that takes to do something of that scope, how many hours it takes. I know it's a lot, and you really invested in us, and I appreciate that very much. We appreciate it very much. And there were some funny people, people who think they're funny, several funny people who came up to me beforehand and said, aren't you in the dance, Brian? They think they're funny. I know, I have the lithe figure of a dancer. I was actually a dancer once, for those of you who thought you were funny. My, my older sister Lisa was a dancer, and she took dance all the years I can remember. And one year, they needed a tree that gets chopped down. Seriously, they needed a tree that gets chopped down in a performance. And so I remember it. I had to stand really still. I, maybe I was... Lisa was... Can I do the math for Maybe I was nine. I had to stand really, really still for a long, long time. And then when the lady in the front went like that, I fell over. It was beautiful. That was the end of my career, though. Um, It's the tights. Um, So anyway, thank you. So we're in the book of Acts in a series called Go, and this is part four. Uh, Part one was called The Waiting... Part two was surrender. Uh, Last week, Pastor Billy talked about expectations. And today, the cost. What's the cost of following Christ? Or maybe more specifically for our purposes for this series, what's the cost of going? As I mentioned, Pastor Adrian shared in part two on surrender. And I think there's something really important about surrender that introduces this whole idea of cost. So I want to bring you back to part two and something Pastor Adrian said. It is impossible to please God without complete surrender. It is impossible. It is impossible to please God in your life and in my life without complete surrender. I know this to be true because I've tried it. (laughs) I've tried living my life with, with something less than complete surrender where I say, okay, God, you, you can have this part of me and you can do this and I'll answer you here. But like Ananias, maybe I would say, ooh, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really faithful and I'm, I go to church and I'm a believer and I'm generous. And I, but, but no, 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 you want me to go there? No, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but I believe it's impossible for us to live at peace with God. I, I believe it's impossible for us to please God without complete surrender. Some of us are here today and we're really frustrated. We're really frustrated because we're, we're saying things like this, like, I, I just don't hear God speaking to me. I, I wish, I, I, I've been praying and praying and nothing is happening. You, you're feeling frustrated, like you're looking around at your life and you're thinking, is this all there is? And this isn't a magic formula, but I'm just here to say, if you haven't completely surrendered to the will of God in your life, it's 
It's impossible to be at peace with God. It's impossible to please him. It's impossible to experience all that it is that God has for you. Okay, with that as an introduction, Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In the book of Acts, we're watching the legacy of Jesus unfold before us. If when Jesus died and was raised again and was ascended into heaven, if at this point you are wondering what happens next, that's the book of Acts. This is the legacy of Jesus being lived out. And if you think for a minute that things were going to settle down once he was raised, they did not. Verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. That should remind you of someone. In fact, Stephen's story should remind you of someone. This man, Stephen, was one of the seven leaders that the twelve apostles chose because the church was growing so quickly they couldn't keep up with all the management issues. So Stephen was one of the seven who was chosen to do that. He was a remarkable man. And and maybe most pointedly because he was a new believer. Uh, Stephen's story happens two or three years after Jesus. Everybody was a new believer. In fact, Most of the people in this room today have been walking with the Lord longer on earth than Stephen ever did. It's an amazing story. As you consider it, I'd like you to think of two things. One, why are you hearing his story right now? How does it apply to you in the here and now? And think about where you've seen it before. As Stephen's story unfolds, think Okay, I know that. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. We've seen that. Opposition arose, however. We've seen that. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. We already know from Pastor Adrian's message that the Apostle Paul is in that group when he was Saul. Verse 10 now, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. You know, that Greek word is interesting, the could not stand up. It really matches a common idiom. It was as if they were being blown away by Stephen's argument. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. False charges. Where have you seen that before? So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. A man full of grace, doing powerful things, speaking truth, accused and brought before the Jewish leaders. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face 
was like the face of an angel. Isn't that an interesting description? These false accusations are being hurled against him, and the tension is mounting, and it's bitter and tough, and here he stands with the face of an angel. We only have one other example, specifically from the biblical text, that is like that, and it's in Exodus when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. One scholar writes, This was not the mild, gentle look that is often seen in paintings of angels, not the fierce look of an avenging angel, but a look that told of inspiration within Clear eyes burning with inner light. We can hardly doubt that it was Saul who remembered that look. A look that burned in his soul until he too was turned to accept Jesus as his master and learn the glow of the fire of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now many of you know what's about to happen to Stephen and you know it's not good. And if you're wondering how he could endure that, or how any of these biblical martyrs could endure that, think about that face. It's the same way you can endure it. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, and what old brother Lawrence said, practicing his presence, which was so powerful on Stephen, it was all over his face. We're in Acts 7, 1 now. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now, uh, in the interest of time, we're not going to go through Acts 7 and Stephen's argument. But Stephen is giving them a history lesson. And what he says in Acts 7 is, Time after time after time, God, your Father, has tried to rescue you. Through history, he has tried, and at every turn, you have rejected him. And Stephen is pleading with them, and I wonder if in that moment, at that time, this man, Stephen, knew that these were his last words on earth. I wonder if he knew that this was his final word. Was he aware of the price he was about to pay? Was he aware of the cost? I'm going to skip forward to Acts 7.51 now. Stephen is concluding his sermon, and he's giving kind of a moral to his story. Acts 7.51 is where I am. You stiff-necked people. Now, we don't use that phrase, but it means unbending, unyielding, stone-like. It means like they were spiritual zombies. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is in the presence of God himself. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I wonder, did he feel that first stone wherever it hit? Did he realize that he would be gone soon? I think he probably did. But next to the presence of Jesus, it didn't matter. That's why his face was aglow. Next to seeing Jesus himself, nothing that could happen to him on earth mattered. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And you know he'll become Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You've heard that before. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Full of grace in the Holy Spirit, worker of signs and wonders, falsely accused, unjustly punished. As he's dying, he calls to the Father, don't hold this against him. It's no coincidence that when we see Stephen's story, we see Jesus' story. I think the message of Stephen's martyrdom is that sacrifice did not end with the cross. Now, that's important because there are some modern streams of theology that preach that it did. That if you're sacrificing, if you're suffering, you're doing something wrong. But clearly, we have Stephen's story mirroring Jesus' story. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection was a one and only atonement for all the sins of mankind. It was unique and different once and for all. But sacrifice didn't end with Jesus. And it's one of the most powerful, poignant messages of the book of Acts. Not only did it not end, Jesus called for it. Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. Stephen paid the ultimate price for Jesus. There is a cost. Stephen paid it in full. There is a cost. And he paid it with joy all over his face. Now, the question is, what does that have to do with me or you? That was a long time ago. That was then, this is now. That's an important question. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Acts is a continuance of the Gospels. What we're seeing in the book of Acts is Gospels Part 2. Everything we see in the book of Acts, or nothing we see in the book of Acts, should surprise us. And so, uh, turn to Luke 14, if you would. Jesus spent a great deal of his ministry introducing us to what would happen in the book of Acts, so we wouldn't be surprised. Luke 14, 25. That's where I am. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Stephen finished. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And there it is. The cost. Everything you have. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing it. You can't read the book of Acts without being asked that question. Will you give up everything you have? Are you prepared to pay all? Not generically. I'm not speaking some academic way. Theologically. I'm talking about me right now and you in your seats. Are we prepared for the cost? Is the same spirit that was in Stephen, in you. Now, there's an interesting response to this. In fact, you can find it anywhere, and that is, come on. We're living in the 21st century. We're not living in the barbaric 1st century Roman Empire. Aren't you being a little melodramatic by claiming Jesus wants my life? We've come a long way since then. We're enlightened now. There's a tinge of sarcasm in my voice, but I'm reporting to you fact of what is being read and said. Is Jesus really requiring your life of you? Short answer is yes. But I'd like to respond to that question with three aspects and three responses. I was talking to Pam about this, and I asked her, when the girls were, we have two daughters, uh, both grown, Aubrey and Suzanne, uh, 27 and 25. I said, when the girls were 9-ish and 10-ish, old enough to understand concepts, and one of them came to you and said, am I going to have to die for Jesus? What would you have said? I wonder what you parents, those of you who are parents of 8, 9, 10-year-olds now, if your child came to you and said, am I going to have to die for Jesus? What you would say. I'll tell you what Pam said. She said, I would say, sweetie, I hope not, but maybe. Are you ready? So if you said to me, Brian, does Stephen mean I'm going to have to die for Jesus? My answer to you is, I hope not, but maybe. Are you ready? So let me give you my three responses to that question. In fact, I had someone say that to me. This archaic idea of sacrificing oneself. How can you still believe that in the modern era? So, three responses to that. Uh, Number one, not only is Jesus requiring your life of you, 
If you are in Christ, you've already agreed to give your life. Someone said, Jesus bids you come die with me. Not only, you've already done it. If you're worried about whether Jesus is going to ask for your life, he already has. How long it lasts on earth is his business. How long it lasts in heaven is forever. Those of you who do not give up everything, everything you have cannot be my disciples. When you are a Christian, what he does with your life is completely up to him. Remember that whole thing about surrender? If the Apostle Paul were here right now, and I see the looks on your faces, and believe me, I thought about this when preparing this message, and I, this is sobering. I know that. And I thought about, how will they process this? If the Apostle Paul were here, and he saw us wrestling with this, I think he'd say what he said to the Galatians. He'd say, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's no more question about my life. I don't live anymore. The life I have is Christ. Or maybe he'd say what he said to the Philippians, who were probably curious about the fact that they were going to lose their friend. Paul had a good idea that he was going to be martyred. There's another one from the book of Acts who gave everything. And he said, look, here's the deal. And this is paraphrase. This is not literal scripture. He said, here's the deal to the Philippians. If I continue to live on earth, great, because I will continue to be a voice for Jesus. If I stay here on earth and have more life here, then I'm going to preach and I'm going to witness and I'm going to tell people about Jesus and I'm going to live my life like it's not my own. And if I die, how much better is that? I'm with him. I can't lose. I think that's how Paul would comfort us. You've already given it up. Number two. So number one is already done. If you're in Christ, that question's been settled. Maybe today it's deepening in you. Number two. Not only is Christ demanding your life There are people today giving their life for Jesus. There are martyrs today who are giving their lives because they love Jesus. In this day, on the left, the gentleman's name is Malak. He's holding a picture of his son. His son was one of the 21 Coptic Christians who were martyred on a beach in Libya in 2017. On the right is Sharun Masih. He's from Pakistan, and he was beaten to death by his classmates because he would not deny Jesus. In the middle, at the top, is a name you probably have heard, Cassie Bernal. Cassie was martyred in the Columbine shooting. And famously, the shooter, whose name I will not mention, said, Do you love Jesus? And Cassie Bernal said, Yes. In fact, that's the name of the book. She said, Yes. And lost her life. On the bottom, that's Lucero Alcaraz. She was one of nine who were killed at Umqua Community College in Oregon in 2015. The shooter came in, uh, took over a classroom, and if you admitted to be a Christian, 
he killed you. Nine that day. Let me, let me just comfort you. It's good that you're in a church that will preach this to you. Number two, not only... So, you know, I thought to myself, and I think the Holy Spirit convicted me. Brian, when you think because you're a Western American comfortable Christian that you are somehow exempt from that, speaking to me, you really insult what they did and what Stephen did. That's number two. Number three, uh, best for last, that's what love is. That's what love is. The very nature of love, real love, not fake Michael Bolton love, two hearts that find a way to keep the fire burning. I'm so sad that I know the lyrics of that song. That's, what love, that's the nature of love. That, that's the definition of love, is sacrifice. Can you imagine being surrounded by people who love you so much that they're willing to make sacrifices for you, they're willing to lay down their lives. For, you know, someone once said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That, don't wonder about this. Don't be intimidated by this. That's what love... Can you imagine a church where people love each other sacrificially? where they don't care so much about their life and they don't care so much about themselves, but they're willing to lay themselves down for the good of... Can you imagine what it's like to be loved by, the, by someone like that? To be, that's the nature of love. Don't be afraid of it. Don't worry about it. 1 John 3.16. Here's what we know how love is. This is what we know what love is. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. So if you have any questions about what love is, what real love is, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Three people. Start with the one on the right. That's Jim Elliott. You know his name. He was martyred by the Alka Indians in 1956, and he's the one who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The picture on the left looks a little skewed. That's Kyle Hockenberry. He was injured in Afghanistan, and he's actually laying down in a medevac helicopter, but the the picture is vertical, so you can read his tattoo. For those I love, I will sacrifice. When we read that, we don't think that's strange. We think that's good. We think that's right. We think that's God. It's not so strange to think about paying this cost. In the middle is Stephanie Decker. Stephanie Decker did something sacrificial that every mother in this room would do. Here's all the remains of the Decker's home after the two tornadoes whipped through Henryville. Just before the devastation struck, Stephanie Decker put herself on the line for her kids. She grabbed a large comforter and wrapped them inside and then rested herself on top of them to shield them from all the debris. I was reaching around holding them. 
and trying to keep everything away from them so it didn't hit them. The wreckage that piled on Stephanie broke seven of her ribs and almost completely severed both of her legs. I had two steel beams on my legs and I couldn't, I couldn't move. I was stuck. Decker told her eight-year-old son Dominic to make sure the coast was clear before getting help. Stephanie's fear was confirmed. A second twister was headed right for her family. And they are screaming, Mommy, I can't live without you. I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. Despite being pinned down by the steel beams, Decker covered her two children a second time in the comforter. After two tornadoes, just minutes apart, leveled their home, Dominic and five-year-old Reese didn't suffer so much as a scratch. Anybody that knows her has no doubt that's what she did. Unable to remove the heavy debris lying on top of their badly injured mother, Decker's young son went for help. The phone lines were down, so Stephanie used her cell phone for something else. And then I, I took my phone and I made a video to my husband. Hey. Telling him I love him. And my children that I love them. After what seemed like a lifetime, a neighbor and four others finally arrived for the 37-year-old mother writhing in pain. He came down and I looked at him and I said, I'm dying. You gotta save me. Tourniquets were made to prevent her from bleeding to death. She was eventually taken to the University of Louisville Hospital where she continues to recover. Both of her legs, casualties from the massive storm. You wouldn't say that's archaic or old-fashioned or radical or first century. You'd say that's love. And every mother in the room and every dad in the room would do it because I love my kids. <laughs> and the best news is that's how God loves you. Right now, today. That's the evidence. You are loved with that kind of love. Right now. Whether you feel it or not, it holds you, it grips you, it keeps you safe. I love that Isaiah text. He carries his lambs in his arms. It isn't strange. It isn't foreign. It's love. Worship team, would you make your way uh, to the front, wherever you are? Pastor Adrian writes, We may tend to think, surely Jesus won't ask me to give my life. But if we believe that the same spirit that was alive and moving in Stephen's story is alive today, then why wouldn't our response be the same? Why would it suddenly require less for us to follow than it did for them? Do you understand the cost? And are you prepared to pay? The response uh, to this message, and this message, kind of message like this begs a response, is in this song. If you want to respond to this message, and I'm not assuming everybody will, but if you want to respond, I'm going to have you, uh, I'd like, I hope everybody stands and worships, but if you're responding to this song, I'd like you to find a line in this song that you will know. And say, yeah, that's my line. I'm praying that right now. So stand. Would you all rise to your feet? And if the Lord is speaking to you, and if you want to respond, find a line in this song. Pick one out and say, Lord, I'm praying that. I depend on you for that right now. Thanks again for listening today. Email us at info at with any questions about our church.
We have two gatherings every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., and a third gathering at 11.45 in Spanish. We are at 1871 Boyers Road in Rockingham, Virginia, and we would love for you to join us. As soon as you're finished listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.